Welcome to the IDC podcast. The IDC promotes independent research on antitrust and competition law and policy issues, being also the point of contact between all those who have a special interest in the area, both in Latin America and globally. Welcome everybody to this new activity of the IDC. Today we're having the pleasure of receiving one of the members of the International Advisory Board of the IDC, Philip Marson. Uh, I think Philip needs no presentation, but for those who might not know exactly uh, what Philip's activities are nowadays, uh, Philip is the Deputy Chairman of the Bank of England, where he's sitting on the, can you, Tell me what it is. It's enforcement case decision making, or how do you? Yeah, call enforcement it? case decision making, and it actually relates to the talk I'm going to give. It's, you know, yet another regulator or authority with concurrent competition powers inserting into its system an independent internal decision making system. And so that's uh, when I left the competition authority, I, I moved to the bank to help introduce this uh, this system. Great. Uh, and as Philip said, he he used to uh, work at the CMA also. And uh, <clears throat> currently, he's also a professor at the College of Europe, where he teaches, among other things, competition law. Um, today's paper, uh, it's in called Enhancing Case Decision Making, Some Blue Sky Thinking from a Rainy Island, a paper that was written by Philip just recently, while I still admit people here. Um, actually, uh, Philip's uh, paper starts with uh, saying that Voltaire's Dr. Pangloss was wrong when he said that this is uh, in, in Philip's opinion, this is not the best of all possible worlds. Uh, everything can be improved, says Philip, and I agree absolutely with that. And that is one of his fundamental beliefs. From there, departure from there, he goes on analyzing some inter interesting development that have been uh, taking place at the UK uh, authorities, not only the competition authority, but also, as Philip just said, some of other authorities like the Offshore and uh, the Aviation uh, Authority, etc., etc. Uh, and he, in his opinion, those experiences in the UK can also enhance uh, and improve the EU uh, case uh, decision-making procedures uh, that, as we all know, has been for 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 quite a long time under the rudder of the uh, some authors, like for example. Ian Forrester, who wrote a very interesting article in 2009 uh, when he was criticizing uh, the procedural issues of the Competition uh, Commission. Um, that, that was also reviewed under the some cases in, in Europe, etc. I, I, I don't want to spoil uh, Philip's uh, presentation, but I mean, that's uh, the start uh, of his presentation or the presentation of his paper. And I think that's a very timely issue for Latin American authorities, uh, specifically competition authorities, but also other authorities that may have some concurrent uh, powers with the competition authorities in each of the countries in the region. So, uh, Philip, uh, welcome again, and uh, the floor is yours. Thank you, Pablo. It's great to see uh, you and your colleagues again and uh, look forward to meeting all people, of course, in person gradually as we start opening up. Um, so the genesis for this paper, it's a very short, short paper. Um, the genesis of the paper was two or threefold. One it relates to something that is still going on in Europe. It might be going on in some of your jurisdictions, but it's definitely going on in Europe. We have had very clear 
judgments from the European Court relating to the governance of competition law cases that basically say, there's no problem, everything's fine, this could not possibly be improved, we have full merits appeal, and you have uh, independent decision makers at the European Commission. So that's one aspect which generated this paper in my mind, because since the Ian Forrester's paper in 2009, and, and, and I've lived this as a competition law practitioner, there is not full merits appeal in Europe, and there is not an independent decision maker, uh, and definitely that independent decision maker, if there was one, is very distant from the case and is a, is a group of politicians. So that made me think, okay, this is kind of one of those emperor new clothes situations. Brave European practitioners like Ian Forrester, then judge, and then now back to being a practitioner again, say the emperor has no clothes. This is not a system of decision making that accords as well as it could with certain tenets of rule of law. Right? And there's a silence from almost everybody else, especially those whose income depends on interacting on a daily basis with the European Commission or the European Court. And I'm I've always puzzled by that that because if any of you ever been over here and have pled a case or have gone on an appeal or done anything like that in Europe, you can see why people not from Europe will say, what the, you know, like, what? We don't get an oral hearing. We don't get full merits appeal, but it, you call it a full merits appeal and you call it an oral hearing. What? You know, you, we just, you know, the case team decides and sends a decision, whether it's a merger or an antitrust case up to the commissioner, she decides, and then she sends something up to the college, none of whom read the papers, no cross-examination, you know, no no, no real right of defense. There, there are statement of objections, there are some little tiny hearings, but there's no real oral hearing with the decision maker, right? You just have an oral hearing with the case team, right? And some people from other member states who might be interested in the case. It's a bit, a bit political. Anyway, that was, that was one gripe I had. And so I was thinking, this should surely be improved. And then we had some cases recently, as I say, who said, no, could not be improved at all. You know, this is this is fine, pan gloss. Second iteration was, or motivation was that um, I firmly believe that throughout the world, um, no matter what else is, is important that's going on politically or anything, uh, authorities around the world are going to have to start dealing uh, much more quickly with a flood of cases relating to digital commerce, whether it's antitrust cases, consumer protection cases, privacy cases, a slew of cases are going to come, whether they're private actions or whether you know, there's a lot in England already. There's a great venue for private actions against Facebook, Google, um, Apple already are, are happening. Um, and the response from the European Commission and some other decision making bodies around the world to this has, has been in tweaking some of its legislation, as you'll know, to offer uh, an alternative avenue to antitrust, which is the avenue of ex ante regulation. And the avenue of ex ante regulation, and I've written about this extensively with Jason Furman and others, says, yes, there is a role for that, but you do have to have some kind of decision-making framework. You can't just make the rules and assume that the tech giants will just comply with them. You can't code for compliance on day one with very general objections like, oh, don't self-prefer. You know, there's going to have to be some kind of hearing, some sort of evidence, some sort of argument back and forth, a defense. You know, something like that, you know, defense of innovation or a defense of efficiency, whatever, um, or defense purely that this is not a violation. This is not anti-competitive self-preferencing, for example. Um, and so that led Rupert Ponson and I uh, a couple of years ago to write a paper about how we felt that effective enforcement of digital cases by any body, any authority that happened to have ex ante 
regulation as the basis for that, in addition to antitrust, um, would benefit from having added onto it a decision-making model. Um, ideally, the one that was quick, otherwise we're just duplicating endless delays that we're going to see and have seen in cases already. Um, and perhaps something that could be a little bit agile and sort of, you know, yes, have an oral hearing, yes, have brief papers and things, but could really focus on, ideally, uh, the remedial stage. So that the remedy stage is well entrusted to policymakers and officials, as opposed to a sort of a binary, you know, yes, no from a judge. So this is the argument we put forward in the paper, roundly ignored uh, at the European Commission. So as grumpy academics and decision makers, we we decided to keep writing. And I wrote this little little paper here that you they were talking about today. And that paper is is motivated, and this is my third motivation, from the fact that when I left the Competition Authority in the UK. I left it as a body that had merged from the OFT and the Competition Commission. And as we merged that body, um, we merged a body that kind of acted like a prosecutor and then brought cases to the, the, the Competition Appeals Tribunal, sort of, but usually probably just flipped the cases onto the Competition Commission. And the Competition Commission had independent hearings, oral hearings, independent, a lot of engagement with the parties, and then inevitably, if the case was important enough, that would get appealed to the Competition Appeal Tribunal. We merged those two bodies, and when we did, we had to think very hard about whether or not we were going to have independent internal decision-making, or whether we were going to just pursue a prosecutorial model. We in the UK convinced the politicians, who were very much in favor of prosecutor, prosecutorial model, that A, we didn't have the prosecutors or the prosecutorial experience uh, within the bodies, and B, but more importantly, let us try the internal one. Let, that's, let us try having these internal hearings um, and then a ideally judicial review level of, of, of appeal, or if we have to have full merits appeal, at least it could be an attenuated one, a, a slightly shortened a full merits. Convince the government of that. Um, and that has led to, I think, an improvement in cases and quality at the CMA, um, a better engagement with the parties. Yes, losses on appeal. You know, I lost a slam dunk excessive pricing case that should not have should not have lost. It definitely, you know, slam dunk, losses on appeal, and uh, you know, you, you win some, you lose some, whatever. So the UK is learning about these bringing these cases. But what I noticed right when I left the CMA, and here's how I get to the point, is that other bodies with concurrent competition powers around the UK, energy, finance, uh, Bank of England, so prudence, um, telecoms, no, no, sorry, let, let, that's an outlier, not telecoms, water, um, and, uh, and uh, 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 aviation. Um, these kinds of regulators have competition powers. Um, and all of them except telecoms had said, we are going to insert into our decision-making framework a level of decision makers independent of the case team um usually outside members this is something we can do in the uk it might not work elsewhere but um you can have members who are paid by the authority but they're appointed by a minister and they're usually people like me who taught a lot or been in practice for a long time you're a decision maker you're paid on a daily basis you come in some some years you've got you know 300 years days of cases some years you have less you know but you come in as an independent decision maker you read the papers you engage with the parties you have oral hearings you write up your decision then the authority issues it as their decision, but it's been it's been decided by you, and then it goes on to appeal if it's important enough. Okay. So this that's what motivated this paper. The third motivation was here we've seen this thing called enhanced administrative decision making proliferate in the UK, not just in the competition world and not just in the concurrent competition world, but all through the UK and even the Bank of England, which I you know I I work at now um, for, for much of the time, um, even for prudence cases. You know or for you know extreme conduct cases in the banking sector 
um, or algorithmic trading cases, things like that. We use this model. Now, that doesn't mean it should be adopted everywhere. It depends on your local tradition, okay? But um, there are a range of benefits to it, right? Where Which I feel are important if I was on the other side. If I was a defendant, I'm getting heard. I'm getting heard by knowledgeable people. I am seeing the case team put under pressure by the independent decision makers. Yes, on some level you might stand back and go, well, hang on, they're being paid by the Bank of England and then their case team is the Bank of England and, or they're being paid by the CMA and their case team CMA, they're all on one side. But I've been in these meetings. We we give the case teams a very hard time, sometimes you know, extremely uh, necessarily, because <laughs> sometimes the case teams and these various authorities um, have a lot of other things on and perhaps, perhaps they haven't made, maybe crossed some T's or dotted some I's. And frankly, they've been zombie cases, legacy cases hanging around the authorities for some years. And sometimes it's our role to say, you know, we need to free you, free you uh, agency decision, uh, case case handlers from these zombie cases and just shut this down. Um, and uh, so that's a model that's been growing up in the UK and in some other areas. Um, I appreciate that. I think it would be cleaner if we had a prosecutorial model and just went to a, a judge. But it's just we're just not set up like that in the UK. Uh, and and the trend for these independent decision makers has been has been um, the, the other way in this independent decision making. OK, so I put forward this paper and I said, look, why don't we think about that at the European level or at other levels where they might be considering in Congress or elsewhere ex ante regulation? And the reason why I proposed it uh, as well uh, at the European level in particular was because the response so far from the officials at the European Commission who are responsible for these cases that are going to start coming under the Digital Markets Act when it's enacted in a few weeks, um, the response has been from them. We don't really expect very many cases at all because it's clear. Our legislation is clear. We tell you what's anti-competitive self-preferencing. We tell you when you shouldn't merge data in your silos. So Apple, Amazon, start separating out your data streams. You know, you know, you should know what you're doing. The rules are clear and they're self-executed. It's a term they use a lot. So therefore, why would we need a decision-making model? The rules are clear. If we find out that you violated the rules, end of per se, object offense, massive fine, 10 or a lot more percent of your global turnover. So you're gonna start looking at fines of 20, 40, 80, perhaps 100 billion, instead of the one or 2 billion uh, euro fines we see. So I look at that and I go, so what's that gonna to lead to, right? If I, was, if I was not with my enforcement hat on, I would look at that and go, bring it to me, we'll say the law firms, bring it to me. We will hang you up in court for various procedural and human rights abuses um, uh, from this bizarre decision-making model. Um, uh, any fine uh, of that size is clearly quasi-criminal in nature and therefore invokes uh, human convention, uh, European Convention on Human Rights. Um, and we know what there that goes. It goes to, into a very dark box for about 18 years and you finally get a decision that, um, that no one's happy with. And so I was thinking, why are they not in Europe and other jurisdictions when they're considering this ex ante regulation or where they're considering political pressures to speed up their anti-just decision-making model, why don't they just try it? It's this, this, this idea of having an independent decision-making model. The response from the European Commission officials that I've talked to, in our little jurisdiction at least, has both so far been A, we don't need it, which I've mentioned, and B, we can't do that. Computer says no. Uh, court says we don't need to. But also, the, the College of Commissioners, Margaret Vestire is one of them, but the College of the Decision-Makers, they're independent, so we don't need an independent decision maker. And I, I keep saying, yeah, but they've not seen any of the evidence. In fact, the competition, the, the, the College of Commissioners, you know, they do not really get a copy of the 800 page decision, nor would they look at it. 
so so there's the gap that I'm trying to fill is could we have an independent decision making layer somewhere in there I don't care if it's European Commission officials I don't care if it's retired judges somebody in there who says I'll run an oral hearing I'll have a multi-party hearing I'll listen I'll cross I'll allow cross something like that but we would have quite strict timelines ideally for it um, that that body could receive complaints from users or third-party intermediaries who are trying to have access to one of these digital platforms for example and we could start with digital because this is the one where everyone says oh it's so fast it's all so complicated blunt rules won't work so therefore we need a little bit of something you know that I, I consider it almost like an arbitral model where they would have to write a decision ideally it would be brief um, I, and then it would be appealed. I'm not taking away the appeal right, but there would be something to appeal rather than just sort of this morass that we have right now. And maybe that would contribute. Obviously, it would slow things down for two or three months, but then it would, might contribute to some remedies that are being imposed or agreed or you know commitments that are offered being actually a targeted to the alleged problem, um, allowing a kind of an explanation of the concerns you know and the explanation of the commitments uh, that, that doesn't happen as, as well now make it more sort of public rather than these sort of secret deals that we hear about happening sometimes in cases and also um, develop some learning and allow also I hope some kind of flexible remedial um, reassessment and so I have sort of sunset clauses that this remedy is in place for a year or two and, and then we'll reevaluate or it'll fall away or whatever because um, if we don't have the technical ability to a b test remedies in the digital space you know, some bodies do the FCA in the UK, we do, we do that really well. A-B testing remedies in digital and in finance, but we can't do it as well in antitrust, generally speaking. But maybe we can we can review, not completely these, you know, every 10 years we do an ex-post review of remedies, nothing like that. It's literally, you know, defendant comes to us and says the remedy's not working or third party comes to us and says the remedy's not working and we reassess and you're learning as you go along. So my, you know, suggestion would be having a flow of transparency, a flow of engagement between parties and 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 other parties and and the and the officials they're learning from one another um am i suggesting that this is panglossian no no i'm not at all but i think you would have a better engagement problems would be fixed what you're probably not going to get though is 40 billion fine against facebook uh on the first day that the dma is is in power be imposed because there would have to be a decision making framework you can't just have that imposed so the politicians and they are politicians at the head of dg of all the dgs in europe and, and other politicians will not be able to get in the pink newspaper a nice headline that says facebook finally uh, hit with a deterrent fine um, um and i say yes that's right because if there is going to be a fine of that measure then you should just have a hearing and secondly it's not just self-executing and secondly um if there is a fine of that size um it is it is going that's going to be appealed right like we definitely know that um uh, I think all, this, all the studies show that it's definitely worth appealing. You know, you you know, your the law firm fees are nothing um, compared to the reduction even of one or two percent of a, of a fine of uh, of even a billion. So anyway, um, that was the paper saying that you know we should we should perhaps consider this. The third reason the European Commission officials say this isn't possible um, is they say basically um, we couldn't appoint anybody independently to do this because the law says computer says it has to be. A, um, a, uh, a commission, a college of commissioners or, or a senior official. Hey, you can make these people senior officials. Um, I'll volunteer uh, for sure. I'll have to get rid of my Canadian accent and, and make perhaps my British passport for the EU to let me in again. But, um, but, the, but 
I think it is possible to find this body of people. Um, you know, there's the law, law firms in London, for example, have a mandatory de-equitization of law firm partners at the age of 50 or 55. So there's a lot of, you know, young men and women around there who would be happy to contribute their computational knowledge to, to judging these kind of cases. And, and also, um, it's, it's something that is, it's not impossible to do that. You could still have the college ratify the decision of the independent panel. So then, you know, but right now there is no engagement between an, the decision maker and the evidence with the parties. There's not, that does not happen in Europe, you know, and there is full merits appeal according to what the judges think, but it's not full merits appeal. It isn't, it's, it's, an, error, it's a, an assessment of a manifest error um, of assessment, which is essentially, you know, let, did they really screw up? Did they make the decision really improperly? Not, is it like completely wrong? You know, in, in, in a sense that we would get in a normal appellate jurisdiction. So that, those are the genesis for the paper. That's the paper suggesting it. Um, uh, I said Rainy Island in the title and Blue Sky Thinking because, you know, I know full well that anything that comes out of the UK is going to be roundly ignored by the EU for many years to come, sadly. Um, but I thought, you know, let's, let's put it up there. And as I mentioned, I've already had, you know, some pushback. Um, and I just would be really curious to hear from those of you who are saying a prosecutorial model system or, or a, a hybrid system, that what works, what doesn't work. What I'm focused on here and what many people have been focused on is we've got to speed up antitrust decision-making in, in digital cases. We have to, there's no question. Um, you could, yeah, you could say, let's dial up the interim measures and the injunctions dial, or you could dial up the, you know, the, the, the fine attaches, you know, um, and, and you don't get any, any, any uh, ability to appeal. The fine this has to be paid right away. You could, there's other things you could play with. I'm not saying don't play with those wheels. Injunctions would be the main thing I would focus on, but this, this kind of decision-making model, you know, is it, is it not worth it? Um, and if it's not great, I'd like to learn because, you know, if we can't move to a purely prosecutorial model system, then this, I think, is a good interim. And equally, those of you who are in prosecutorial systems, maybe you're not as suspicious as I am that it won't be a particularly nuanced decision. Maybe you'll think, no, it's actually, it's not as binary as you think, Philip. It's, it's actually in a prosecutorial model. There is an opportunity for remedial review, you know, and to check that the remedies are working. It's not just a one-shot game. Um, so that's 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 the paper, and and, uh, and I hope you you found it interesting. I'm really looking forward to um, learning what you think about uh, the, some of the ideas, how they might pertain to your jurisdiction. Are you as concerned as I am that digital cases are going to come plugging up the system? I think they are, and that's good for private practitioners, perhaps, but it's not necessarily good for the you know the the, the way we want this all to evolve. And my final point is this: if we don't get the decision making quick, uh, like we need to. I fear that in about five or 10 years, some jurisdictions are going to look and say, you did try to speed up your decision making, you didn't do it very well. So we're going to just impose mad regulations, like seriously mad regulations. And I can think of a couple of jurisdictions, um, China and India, where they have imposed, as, we, as many of you will know, really quite intrusive remedies uh, with no due process at all on tech. Uh, and I think that that's not fair for any company to have to go under. And so I, I'm just trying to introduce a little bit more uh, rule of law, a little bit more fairness into the system might make decision making a tiny bit longer um, initially, but then you would have perhaps less appeals. Maybe you'd have better scoped remedies, and um, and and you can keep learning as you as you're doing. Thanks. Thank you very much, Philip. Uh, very clear as usual. Uh, before uh, I give the floor to any of uh, in the audience. Uh, listening to your comments, uh, and actually again referring to Ian Forrester's uh, paper in 2009, 
I remember afterwards, uh, 2011, I think it was, or two or three years after that, it was uh, the Menarini case of the, by the European Court of Human Rights, uh, in which actually what they stated, if I'm not wrong, is that uh, the inter in, in, in integrated authorities, as they are designed in Europe, are not against uh, human rights built in, in Europe. Can you just comment a little bit on how that works vis-a-vis -vis your comments and that the improvements you're proposing? Yeah, so I'm, I'm firmly in the camp that Menorini is wrong, obviously, it's the court judging itself. Um, but um, others who are pro-Menorini and are saying, no, that has been the final review of the consistency of the application of competition law with um, with human rights legislation, um, and that's end of, I, I go to back to this Pangloss point, which is, but let's look at it in reality. Like, let's actually look at the emperor or empress with no clothes here. Like this, you say that this is fair, this is a full review, it accords with the human rights legislation, but there is no independent hearing. There is no contact with the decision maker. There is no full appeal. So that's three of Dicey or or uh, or any Bingham's you know points about rule of law um, of the five or six or ten out there. And so now now some some people will agree with me about that and say, but it works. And you know you do get a right to appeal, and you don't need to have make all this insertions of of independent decision making. And I say, well, you know what's interesting? In the UK, we do have access to a decision maker, we do have independent hearings, and we do have a very sophisticated competition appellate tribunal. And yet we have inserted these these roles into our decision making structure, not to comply with human rights law, but to comply with, with the sort of basic tenets of rule of law necessarily, which is like, you should be able to have access to your decision maker. You should be able to look them in the eye and say, this is why I did this and and not just have Clifford Chance rock up with 600 pages of defense, you know, um, but actually have some engagement. And I've, I've seen it work and I think it works reasonably well. I'm not saying you get it right all the time, but I think it's worth the experiment. And therefore, it's interesting to me that so many authorities in the UK who whose just existing decision making model already complies with all of those points I just made have decided to add this additional layer in. And the best example is the Bank of England, right? You know, Bank of England, you know, is a is a is a, a august, very expert body. I would have been perfectly fine with the previous decision model, which was the general counsel and and a couple of the members of court deciding on various cases. But for 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 various reasons, they decided to insert this model, mainly for the reasons I mentioned, but also because they don't really they didn't feel comfortable as executives or as senior managers of a regime saying we're going to not only decide on opening the case, decide on how it's run, and then deciding on its closure, and then decide whether or not to appeal or not. That didn't feel right to them as a as a governance uh, body, um, and so they they rightly created this this extra layer. Um, so that's my point. You know, no, uh, uh, very 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 many and very many astute clever European legal academics primarily and members of the European legal service completely disagree with me and say that Menorini ended it. There is no issue of human rights uh, and fair process in the, in, in, in the EU. It's all been solved. And I just say, ah, really, really? Have you ever been to an oral hearing? Have you ever seen, have you ever seen any cross-examination? No, it doesn't happen. Have you ever seen any rights of defense? No. Have you ever seen a full merits bill? No. So it's one thing for the court in, in Luxembourg to say, yeah, we think we got it right. And it's another thing for uh, me to see that actually happening on the ground. And again, I go back to it. You don't see a lot of European lawyers complaining about this. Gee, I wonder why, because they're having lunch with commission officials all the time. They don't want to irritate them. So that's my cynical view of things. And so, you know, wearing an academic hat, sometimes I throw out papers like this to say, really, is it really is fair and hopefully, you know, engage with, with that. But my, my main point, though, is I also think that 
forget their whole rule of law point. Look at the remedial point. You know, if you're going to engage with these tech giants who know way more, way better resourced, the problem we've had with competition law or any cases ever since the beginning of time, wouldn't you prefer some kind of model where you can actually test remedies and, and engage with them and say, why, Amazon, do you need to share all your data amongst all of your systems? Why is siloing it as the DMA is going to make Amazon do? Why is that such an inefficiency? Um, and sim similar Facebook, similar others. And maybe you might find out actually this idea of data, data siloing um, is mad, you know, could well be. I actually think it is kind of mad. Um, we can get into that substantively if you like. But, but the other issue is self-preferencing, right? You know, and self-preferencing happens all the time. I love my kids more than I love your kids. You know, it, it's, you know, so, so there is an issue though with self-preferencing in the digital space with the size of the screens and the lack of transparency about, you know, Amazon's choice, really? No, it's an algorithm, you know? And so that kind of thing means, you know, you, you need to have more sort of kite marks of quality rather than just what you see uh, on your phone uh, to decide what to, uh, to look at. So I think there is some argument in digital for these some of these practices are standard exploitative or exclusionary practices very familiar to antitrust law some of them are actually i think kind of new you know and kind of very you know uh, and you know uh, primarily based on the fact that the nature of digital uh, engagement with us as um you know lazy mouth breathing consumers of stuff on our phones and 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 very very clever uh, data scientists on the other side. So I'm not trying to say we should be overly suspicious, but I, of what they're doing. But I'm saying what we should be doing is indicating and letting the defendant have a right to say, actually, if you do that, we won't be able to offer these services. You know, and not these mad threats that Google and and Amazon occasionally say. They say things like we're going to withdraw from Australia or. Amazon, you know, has been saying repeatedly, you know, we won't be able to provide these products at the right time. The prices are going to go up. Everything's going to be wrong. We have to data, you know, if you make us data silo this, we're going to have to stop Alexa working in Europe. Well, you know, great, please do. You know, I, I wouldn't allow Alexa in the house. Um, but, the, you know, that's just my view. But the thing is, is that that's not going to happen, right? It's not, you know, that this kind of threat that, you know, you're going to suddenly see this re-separation -separ of all the services. It's not going to happen. There are models of, of ways that we can solve these problems through imposing data portability and, and and interoperability solutions. And those kind of remedies I would rather discuss with the defendants and the, and the dominant firm with an expert body rather than just leaving it to a court or rather than just leaving it to the case team, you know, and uh, and I think that's uh, that's that's why I call for this sort of engagement. So I've, I've tried to answer the human rights question, but, you know, so I, I've said I've disclosed where I stand on that one. But mainly it's also about the idea of bespoke remedies that might actually work rather than just some sort of binary, you know, guilty, not guilty type of thing that, uh, that you might see in a prosecutorial model. Well, I, going, going there again, uh, so you, you, your, your suggestion is that this independent panel, for example, be uh, comprised not only with economists and lawyers, but also with data scientists, engineers, etc., or I mean, what about economists and, and, and lawyers? And that, that? So, so the criticism so far in the UK system, especially from some politicians recently, is that we tend to draw our independent judges, and I was an inquirer, that's what we call them as inquiry chairs. I was an inquiry chair. We tend to draw them from the retired partner of uh, economics or law firms, right? And so therefore, you know, that's good, that's for expertise, but frankly, we don't actually tend to, tend to draw from them. We actually tend to draw from them from business. 
so people who've been chief executives of businesses and that so you're sort of this sort of british thing of being judged by your peers kind of thing so chief executive lloyds comes in and he can see that you know his is is you know former colleague whatever is judging his case um subject to recusal laws etc but the thing is is that that then that, that therefore makes the decision more acceptable but what i think is you, you could have them uh as a as a, as we do already with a, a panel of say 30 and you draw from them you go this is particularly a data science case let's have a data scientist on it this is particularly a case of economics this is a, you know a slam dunk object defense case let's throw the lawyers on it you know whatever you can mix and match if you want but i think a pool would be better and i would frankly draw really from retired judges you know um who have seen a range of cases especially generalist judges who are then advised by the with the technical expertise and we're seeing a little bit of that growing in our work at, uh, I sit on a, a regulatory decisions panel at the Financial Conduct Authority and the Payment Systems Regulator, and we are very amply served by data science team, and especially um, in, in, in our algorithm trading cases when we're trying to identify whether um, there's been a, uh, and we have the data to find, you know, pretty well, pretty all pretty clear uh, malfeasance um, uh, from the business trading case. And, that, and that's another thing I should emphasize is, Yes, I've gone a little bit into the financial services world. I'm really an antitrust guy, former prosecutor, etc. But but the financial services world, ha when you look into it a little bit, has a range of similarities with these big tech uh, alleged offenses, um, insider trading, you know, and algorithm collusion and all that. But they but they also have um, like a, a range of offenses against self-preferencing. So what I always find amusing is that. You know, the competition, the antitrust world loses their mind when they hear that we might be prohibiting self-referencing. And then you go, well, hang on, we do that all the time, all the time in finance. Is there a difference? Is there is there some reason we shouldn't? You know, because we do know that self-referencing is normal, rational, and is largely pro-competitive in many ways. But there are some times when it's not. And so I'm just calling for some kind of model where maybe we should look at some of the financial services cases where they decided, no, actually, that self-referencing there, that's a little bit like front-running. That's a little bit like insider dealing. Um, we're going to be a little bit more suspicious about that because of the way the self-referencing, you know, changes the consumer engagement with the with the offer. You know, um, or it looks like misleading advertising, those kinds of things are fraud. So I think we should be learning from more areas of law. You know, academic would say that, wouldn't I? But there, but I think there are some lessons, not just, oh, it's too difficult. And you listen to some of these competition cases, right? Or some of the competition conferences right now, and you still that, get that kind of far right, you know, oh, this is so difficult. The government should get in, shouldn't get involved in this. How dare you propose more government officials meddling in a different level, you know, you know, you know because they know that they would rather take their chances in court where they can string the case out for you know for 18 years so so i think it's a good enforcement suggestion to say let's add in an independent layer of people with a range of experiences data science business remedial um privacy if need be competition whatever depending on the case the case is still like it's decided by us but it still has to be ratified by the authority you know um and that's you know uh, uh, it could be the board or you know in the uk most authorities have a board in your jurisdictions they might not they might have commissioners um and then but at least there's been some engagement because what now i'm seeing is not a lot of engagement with the parties in uh, in situations that um, that i think there, there could be better engagement and not necessarily just in a let's wait to see you in court point of view but actual engagement you know um to, to say okay we hear you this is how we could change our business model to it to attenuate your concerns um you know settlement like inducing settlement basically is what i'm talking about with they're written up you know in ways that, uh, that that i think might be helpful i don't know if anybody has any question but uh before that i don't see any hands 
uh, up there. But uh, this also leads us obviously to its anti-regulation and uh, the eventually anti-competitive conduct of some of these gatekeepers, uh, digital platforms, etc. Um, and you've had a very interesting experience on open banking in the UK, and maybe that's also that's something you can share with us. But I mean, my question here is, which would be your reaction? You, you already mentioned something. Uh, what would you, what, which would be your reaction to all those who maybe support the other views in the sense of, hey, do not, do not intervene, do not uh, regulate, because you will, I don't know, stop innovation on some, some issues like that. Uh, what, what's your reaction? That's one question. And the other question is, or more than a question, my opinion is that although there might be very interesting, let's say global, sometimes regional, but maybe global uh, uh, sort of informal regulation, I think this is definitely something that has been, needs to be fought through the national systems in, in general terms. Obviously you have Europe, that's another yeah. system, but I mean, in, in our country, I think that's, although we may have the Mercosur or whatever regional, issues or global WTO, et cetera, et cetera. I think we need to definitely stress this on a national basis. Yeah. Well, let me address that first in the, in the first place. I think almost all of this enforcement is going to be national. Frankly, the EU has not budgeted, you know, as you, you, many of you will know, they've, they've allowed uh, this new unit that will be responsible for all this ex-ante regulation in, in the NHS space. We staffed by, you know, budgets of, of 60 uh, people um, for all of Europe. So obviously that's not going to work clearly so they're already reaching out you know not really far enough as they should but to the national authorities the national regulatory authorities like telecoms and but also finserve and also competition so clearly the enforcement will be national even within a regional grouping okay now, some clever lawyers will rat will rightly say wait a minute nibus needum you know double jeopardy there's all sorts of things going to be going on no the the european competition network has a very very uh clear, uh, it's not necessarily always clear to people outside it, but clear system of case allocation um, is reasonably quick as well. Um, and that will be a real headache, but that's what they're trying to work out right now in some of the parliamentary discussions in Brussels is how do you assign cases and, and, and when will you do that? So I think most of the enforcement will be national. Um, and then some of them might get elevated up to the regional level if that body has that kind of that kind of ability. You know, you look at some of the the, the countries that, that don't necessarily have strong national enforcement, you know, they, they are already being threatened by some of the big companies saying, well, we'll just delist you, like we'll just drop our services in your area. Those people, those governments do have to link up regionally. You know, I'm thinking of Mercosur, perhaps a little bit. I'm thinking of um, ASEAN. I'm thinking about, you know, some of the situations in some of the African regions. They need to they need to link up, I think, a little bit just to have that kind of counterweight to say, no, no, you're not just dealing with one country, you're dealing with five or six. But, but, and, and there are tools for enforcement cooperation there that, that could be bolstered. But to your point about open banking and our, and our experiences, so that was a competition case. I was at the, one of the main decision makers on the case. I was the deputy chair of the case. It's an antitrust case, as I, as I say, but in the, in, the, in, the, in the vein of our market investigations regime, which was not to seek out uh, new violations uh, and to boldly go into, into areas where there might be new kinds of theories of harm, but basically to look at an oligopoly of, uh, of, of extremely lazy banks um, who competed on the periphery uh, for acquisition, customer acquisition at the university level? Here's a hundred pounds, uh, student, open your account with me, and then basically, you know, didn't give you any good services at all um, for the rest of your time. So they were exploiting the backbone. So we couldn't find an antitrust defense, but what we did find is we felt that was not an, as innovative a market as it could be, let alone competitive. So you're absolutely right to say that the bank's main defense was 
hey, come into Lloyds Bank. Look, we've got a Googleplex here. And they do. Most of the banks have these major data centers. Of course they do. Obviously they do. But they weren't using them to innovate new competitive products. They were using them to innovate new ways of exploiting the back book, which is you and I who've had an account more than two years. So we're clear evidence of this. So we thought, okay, the politicians are, 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 are actually, even though they were Tories, they were particularly intrusive. You know, they, they, were, they were like, break up the banks. You know, we were getting clear political signals, break up Lloyds, break up Barclays, um, because these, these banks had grown to such power because of mergers. So they're saying, just demerge them. Um, we resisted the political pressure, you know, and imposed these data portability and, and interoperability uh, remedies, um, which created open banking and which is being picked up around the world uh, in different ways. Uh, admittedly, you know, Australia, consumer data right, you know, Brazil, open banking, more like ours, you know, this kind of thing. Um, I think it's been good because even though the politicians um, crapped on us from a very big height and said, you have not been intrusive enough we were able to say but we have actually fostered innovation like before there was no innovation your bank was not doing anything for you now because the bank was having to send their sensitive consumer data about you um, in a very protected manner through a regulated sandbox um, to financial intermediaries who could devise new products and and disintermediate your 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 financial offering um, competition was being introduced because of inter interoperability so i'm a big fan of open banking because it was a gradual remedy that well the, the imposition of it wasn't gradual it was very immediate but that we see the competitive effects we see greater choice greater simplicity greater innovation in the uk digital market frankly i think it was going to happen anyway but we kind of woke up the oligopoly early and so therefore they they didn't didn't have their lunch eaten by foreign banks coming in um post-brexit especially so so i think it's a decent remedy and i think also our decision making structure was independent panel five independent members, not employees of the Competition of Markets Authority, appointed by the minister to do this hearing, you know, that. And, and in our other time, we were deciding on phase two mergers and, and uh, antitrust cases. That's what we do as independent decision makers. Um, above the case team, and then we and then we decide on the remedies. And then we test the remedies, you know. And I think that's a better model, frankly. Um, one obvious question you might have is, well, the UK has that system. Why are they bothering with ex-ante regulation? If they already did a market investigation reference on two platform, two big platform markets, energy and finance, and imposed open open remedies like this, and I did, and then dropped a whole pile of antitrust cases, and and so you don't need ex-ante regulation. And our answer to that, we did in, in the Furman report, where we said, yes, we have that tool in the UK, but that's a one-shot tool. Like we tend to do something like that, like once a generation, like we look at banking, we go, okay, now we're going to leave it alone. And then we come back to it and we go, okay, we'll look at, look at it again, you know, we, or maybe once every 10 years. It's a, and it's also a one-shot tool. It just, we, even though we had tons of remedies in there, they were very technical. It, it was only about retail banking and SME loans. It wasn't, you know, finance. So now we're trying to roll out uh, those remedies into other financial sectors without having to do the market investigations. Um, so the FCA, the PSR, the Payment Systems Regulator, and the CMA are looking at mortgages, you know, pensions, you know, and rolling it out into a into a different system. And so I'm a big fan of it. Um, but mainly because, as just to go back to your initial point about innovation, of course the bankers all told us that they were innovative and our remedies would destroy their innovations. Um, and the only time we believed them was when we were considering the strong arguments from government to break up the banks and saying, actually, no, we don't think that extraordinary remedy is is justified. There's no extraordinary evidence to justify that. But secondly, we think that actually would harm innovation. Um, what we want is to open up these these platforms. Um, and so the 
the argument in a Facebook case, for example, would be allow your social graph to be transferred, you know, and, and then you can, you know, you can access your colleagues on Twitter or whatever, you know, and, and so, you know, there's ways of linking up these, 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 these big tech platforms or, and then if the market provides a remedy like uh, fintech intermediaries explode in the UK and, and become really, really um, interesting and innovative, great. If the market doesn't, then it's not because of the exclusion by the lazy oligopoly, right? It's, it's because people don't want that product. So it's more like, let's let the market work. Whereas as opposed to relying on, you know, and there was a big oligopoly, it's nine banks in the UK. Mm. Um, I know you have a lot more in, in, in countries on the call, but in our particular market, you know, that was a very loose oligopoly, um, but they were lazy as anything. Unbelievable how much they did not care about their customers. And now they have to, and they're ranked as well. And we have a ranking requirement that they, they, uh, they, they're ranked every month as to how, how good they are with respect to each product. So, so your, ex, your expert analysis of the open banking is definitely very positive in the UK uh, market. I say it is, but it depends what your metric is, remember, and you've heard me make this joke before. People who say, well, how many people have switched from Lloyd's to Barclays, whatever, and I keep saying to them, we have seamless switching in the UK. Everybody in the UK knows that you can switch accounts and that you will not lose your employment check, you will not lose anything. It is absolutely government guaranteed. It's seamless and almost, almost instant, okay? And yet nobody takes it up, right? Because you know, uh, British people switch their spouses more frequently than they switch their bank accounts. So, so what we were trying to introduce, and I made this joke before, is we were trying to introduce affairs. We're trying to introduce, okay, you don't have to go to your bank for everything. You could go to another bank for another financial product. And you could go to another bank for this. And yes, you might think it's a pain in the neck, but actually it isn't, right? You get this and in your hand and you get a mortgage very quickly. You know, you, you can, the, the market itself is becoming disintermediated and disrupted. And therefore, why not allow FinTech intermediaries to say, to give you advice on an app that says we are noticing that you're you'd be getting a way better interest rate in a different account we'll sweep that automatically you know or just just let us you know and and things like that no fraud has come about no privacy breaches have come about it's a very highly regulated sector financial services so that you know might not mean might mean that we're not ready, ready to move that remedial approach completely over to big tech because it doesn't start from a heavily regulated background but I think there's some some scope for it at all. But no, no, if your metric was switching or your metric was something like that, no. You know, there's been hardly any increase in switching. What there has been is an increase in affairs, financially, not, not romantically. Uh, so far, I mean, that's, there's 50 million customers in the UK now who have multiple bank accounts, multiple products, um, and they don't, and whereas before they only had one, and, and they're not being screwed anymore. So, you know, they must be happy, um, uh, we think. And, uh, and, and, but it's a gradual remedy. We're not trying to you know, rock the boat and have a massive, massive divestiture package. Um, that might be relevant in some times, like Facebook Giphy, you know, fine. You know, I'm, I'm actually quite relaxed about that, that, uh, that block. But the, um, but, but others, you know, might, it might not be appropriate. Great, thank you, Philip. Uh, I think Carlos Mena has a follow-up question. Uh, Carlos? Yes, hi, Philip. Great hey, presentation. Carlos. Thank you. Um, I, I have a question regarding market investigations. As, as you know, we have that in Mexico. Yes. And um, our experience has been that there's a lot of questioning regarding fairness to, to the companies, and especially since we can, the, the authority can conduct um, down rates to, to investigate in this, and, and there's no wrongdoing. So, so if it is uh, a very aggressive, uh, aggressive measure. 
And the other interesting question on fairness has been that it is not fair for the regulators because they don't have the opportunity to actually influence what the competition authority is doing in their regulated markets and that they are kind of um, introducing new regulation where they are the ones that should be regulating indirectly. You know? So so what do you think about that? If there's been some experience about that in the UK and uh, that we can learn from. Excellent. No, Carlos, thank you so much. Well, we, we don't have dawn raid powers to supplement our, our investigatory regime and the market investigation references. There's all sorts of statutory fines and other things and requirements. You know, it's an RFI regime. You know, we send mm -hmm. out information requests and, and demand um, uh, hearings with chief executives and things like that. But your point about the regulators is very apt because in the UK system, market investigation regime system, it's kind of known and the board of the CMA has to think about this quite carefully before they launch a market investigation. Basically, the, the period of the market investigation, 18 months or 24 months, that basically uh, chills all merger activity during that period of time, um, and 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 all manner of other things just sort of stop, you know, like that because the market is being looked at really closely. And uh, I find it I find it interesting when that happens. When I was on the defense side, I'd say to parties, I get it, why you think you you shouldn't merge during this investigatory window, but why not? This is the time when it's going to be looked at, and you're going to be looked at anyway. And so, you know, why would you allow that to affect your business strategy? So, so we do think about that quite carefully as, as decision makers or as, as the board about whether we're going to investigate that regime. But equally, as you say, because the, the other regulators have really hacked off, you know, that wait a minute. And so we have to liaise with them first and say, we're about to move in. We're about to look at energy. We're about to look at banking. Um, we want you in the tent with us. And the regulators are like, wait a minute, we've got this. Like we're in a supervisory and an enforcement regime. We deal with these giants every day. We are not regulatory, we're not captured regulators, you know, they always allege that. We go, we're not trying to think that you're captured, but there's some problem here that your really cool tools is not, is not solving, right? We're getting a lot of grief, especially politically about the price of gas, the price of, uh, price of a bank account, whatever. Um, and so it leads me to my main answer, which is, sorry, it's a woolly one. The regulators and the competition authority have got to, got to get a good MOU going or something, some kind of arrangement. We have a really good arrangement now in preparation for the digital cases that are coming called the Digital Regulation Cooperation Forum. I think I might have got that right, where it's the FCA, the PSR, the CMA, um, and there's various other concurrent regulators, a privacy regulator as well, who are going to help manage not only the case allocation, but also who to put on what team, how many privacy people do you need to have in a team, how many competition people do you need to have in a team. Now, who knows if that'll work, right? Because as as you allude, this is this is very political issues, small p political issues as well, bureaucratic turf. Um, and I, I my answer usually is just well, transparency, communication, prepare. You know, because the CMA or the competition authority is only entering this regime because there's been in the, entering this sector because there have been allegations of, of something going wrong that the existing tools can't handle. It's not usually, hey, you know, we, I, like when the, in the excessive pricing cases we had at the CMA, yes, there was a degree of regulatory failure. There was a market failure and there was a regulatory failure. The NHS wasn't doing its job. The Department of Health wasn't doing its job to push back enough on the on the price spikes. Um, that's true. But, they were, you know, it wasn't this big monolith. You know, the, the NHS and the Department of Health are known as the largest employer in Europe. Okay, they're huge. But their department to deal with Pfizer, say, is like three guys or three women. You know, they, you know they're not, they don't have this big buyer power thing that, they, that people seem to think they have. And so stuff slips through. Even 2,000% price increases slip through sometimes. And that's when the authority has to come in and say, 
we've got this. <laughs> now, those of you from jurisdictions uh, that, that rightly probably not got involved in excessive pricing cases in the antitrust world, I applaud you because I wish we didn't have that safety net here, but I was given excessive prices cases, I have to go decide them, you know. Um, but that's where we actually did have to talk to Department of Health and NHS a lot and say, we're coming into your box, we're, we're going to come in here and we'll probably lose, but we need your evidence, we need your affidavits, we need to know why you didn't squeal when that price shot up, what, you know, we need to understand this, we're being told it's to do with innovation, our paying for R&D, you're the experts, tell us. So it's more like bringing them into the tent, you know, and, uh, but, you know, uh, you know, it, I, a lot of jurisdictions just won't even bother with that. I think in Egypt, for example, um, like the central bank is getting into, in, into, into, into antitrust and merger control. And I was talking to them about this because I did a review of the Egyptian regime, the OECD, a few years ago. And I was like saying, what, what the hell are you thinking? Like, why are you getting the central bank involved in, in merger control of financial institutions? Um, it works in some jurisdictions, but you're just entering the space and you have a reasonably well uh, uh, remunerated or whatever and independent competition authority. And they're like, no, we don't believe the competition authority will do the job right. So we're going to go into this space and therefore we have to hire like 150 competition economists to do merger control. And it's one of those things where I just go, well, maybe if you talk to each other, you could have worked something out. Because <laughs> right now the, the authorities annoyed, the bank is going to get all these cases it doesn't know what to do with, you know, and it's one of those things where you think something went wrong there. I'm not saying that Egypt got it wrong necessarily. It's just, you know, some, something weird happened there and there's something political probably. But, and that can happen in these, these areas too, as different jurisdictions in the digital space fight for you know, control. Yeah. The most obvious, when we did the Furman report, everyone said, why didn't you place the digital markets unit in the UK? Why didn't you place it in where you obviously all thought it should be, which is Ofcom, the telecom trick there. We said well, we didn't place it there for various reasons, which is we're not sure that's the right regulator, you know, for 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 this sector, you know, like that. They should be involved by all means, but just dumping it over to telecoms is maybe not the right answer, you know. And, and as I've said, I think you can learn more from financial financial services regulation, I think, than in looking at digital harms than that perhaps necessarily um, utilities regulation. You know, long answer. Thanks. Just one comment there for, for Philip. Oh, hi, Philip. Hey. How do you see the, the coordination here between some authorities now that are not involved in competition only, but for example, the FCA in the UK has to apply and cover competition matters. So um, this coordination also is not necessary, but at some point it, it will be of the paramount importance because you can have a contradictory. So how do you see this in the rise of digital economy where you will have data, you will have uh, competition issues, privacy issues and, and all of that? Well, the way we're doing it in the UK, I mean, in the Churchillian sense, I don't know if it's the best of all possible worlds in the Panglossian sense either, but it's the best so far that I've seen, is that they've got this formal digital regulation cooperation forum of the FCA, Ofcom, Competition Authority, Privacy, etc. They And it's not just a bunch of mid-level, because I was, I was a member of some of these fora earlier, and they were just generally mid-level or senior officials meeting once a month to talk about cases, you know, it's sort of very, very woolly. I don't think it should be like that at all. And what, so what the UK has decided is it's going to be like a, a unifying body that has it, like a chief executive, a very senior official type of thing, who's in charge of not only case allocation, but deciding which people and which bodies, which remedies are being used for which cases. And I think the reason why I like that is that by making it a separate kind of coordinating body, 
they're going to have they're going to be subject to various transparency obligations it's not just you know no sorry we're not telling you what we're doing like like some coordinating bodies do they're going to have to publish how they how they're going to approach some of these cases and i think that does help signal to the market or maybe we will get a fair hearing or maybe we will be able to talk to these people uh, um maybe not maybe you'll be really uh, cynical and, and say no we won't but at least you'll have a contact point whereas right now it, when you just have loose coordination you know one body can say to the other body well you just you know you deal with that and you deal with this and the parties are like well who am i dealing with am i dealing with the competition authority or the financial regulator or you can start these whispering games where we've been assured by the financial conduct authority that our our practices are fine and and then the competition authority goes no they're not fine you know and you know so that kind of thing hopefully will reduce when you have an actual coordinating mechanism but it's a very it's a very big deal this, to create yet another coordinating body within government but i think it's better than relying on the goodwill of you know regular meetings with your officials i, I think that's not very transparent and it might work but i i, I refer in digital for it to be very transparent you know about what's happening uh, for the defendants for the for the, the companies but also for the officials around the world watching and saying okay how did they handle that case we are reaching the end of our our session today philip but you mentioned maybe indirectly uh on on excessive pricing cases that we've seen obviously decided in the, in the uk by the cma mainly in the last year or two years uh, we've also seen some cases of the aspen case in, in, in europe uh something similar in france and italy do you do you has nothing to do with our today's uh, subject, but I mean, do you think there might be a comeback of exploitative or excessive pricing cases in Europe or globally in general? That, that there'll be more? Is that what you were saying? Yes. Look, I, I, look, I, I, I disclose you, right? Like when I got hit with a bunch of excessive pricing decisions I had to make, I was not pleased, right? Because I, I do really think that they're better decided by the actual official regulator and and I was not happy, you know, because I had like five or six come at me at once. And yes, they look like open and shut cases, but they're not. They're not easy. And, you know, there's always this innovation in R&D, defense, etc. Um, and as I say, we lost some, we won some. But um, I think what's happened, maybe, and I'll close with this, I guess, is the zeitgeist seems to be, whether it's pharma or other products, consumers, I think, are kind of waking up around the world. Yes, we love convenience. We love, you know, sliding our thumb over a phone and all that. But I think some of us are starting to wake up and go, why the heck are we paying so much for X or Y? You know, and don't even get me started on oil prices because you know this is just a rocket and feather thing. Any, any of you who are paying more for petrol or gas right now, you you know full well that that, those, that, is, that is not in response to supply and demand. Um, that, is a, that is the standard practice of the oil companies. You know, rocket up, feather down. You know, we know we've seen this before. Will there be any cases? No. Probably not on that, but I think there's something to do with fairness, you know, however you define it, that authorities are getting a lot more complaints that are based on, hey, we feel there's something going on here. And when that happened 20 years ago in the UK, it's it was called Rip Off Britain, and the consumer group responsible for it created this idea that, hey, customers, wake up, you're being ripped off, and the authorities were flooded with complaints. Now, some of them could be looked at as consumer protection cases or, or antitrust cases, perhaps. Um, and we had to create various case funnels to work out where, who got what and when and whether we'd work on them at all or not. But um, the, 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 I think there's something going on there. Um, right now, it seems to be pushing the development of 
the, the, the class action regime. So in the UK, we have the massive Apple private action litigation against the 30% commission. We've got uh, the new, uh, my former colleague, Lisa, she's brought this case against uh, Facebook for exploitation of consumer data and is alleging a harm of 60 pounds a year per customer, which when you add it up is, is not insignificant. Um, and anyway, I don't think, I don't know where these cases are going to go anywhere, but I think there's, I think that's what it's, it's, it's thinking there's some sort of small P or big P political awareness that even though a lot of us just sit there looking at our phones half asleep and, and are pleased by the convenience and the innovation, there's, there's something where you go, hang on, I am, why am I paying that? You know, or what, wait a minute, what's going on here? Now that could lead to the, the introduction of spurious complaints. Like, hey, why is the price of gas the same everywhere? But you know, that, you know, or spurious, you know, cinema tickets are the same everywhere, you know, man, no kidding. You know, that, you know, they're the function of competition as opposed to oligopoly. But it's, it's one of those things where I think, I think that's what's leading it to us. Uh, that, and antitrust authorities have been leaned on by their ministers to do something, right? Now I wish that the do something would be give your regulator of that sector better powers don't give this to antitrust, but um, but we in the UK as and in the Europe, you know, our, our number one offense is excessive pricing, um, and so there's no wonder that after 20, 30 years of non-enforcement of that provision, that we would finally have some of these these cases coming up. Even though, as I say, as a as a as a case handling type person years ago, I did not like it when the cases came at me, um, but you know, you, you you know, they they came. They were well documented, well well well. Uh, well-founded cases, I thought, and uh, for the most part, so you bring them, you know, and because otherwise you've got to explain why you're not, you know. Mm. Um, so, uh, so that's why we do that, you know. And I think to, to, a lot of U.S. friends always point out to me that we're mad to have excessive pricing, you know, legislation in the U.K. and antitrust. And I say, yeah, you you have it too, you know, you do. You, know, you just don't call it excessive pricing in our antitrust. You have it under other laws. So that's the way we do too. But sometimes there's a hole in the regulation and it ends up going over to antitrust. That's the difference is that we have this residual power that we have to look at these cases. Um, that's why. Great, thank you. Thank you, Philip. Uh, thank you very much again for the generosity. It's been a pleasure once more to have you at home at the IDC. Uh, we will be definitely following the, 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 the developments both in Europe, America, and also in the region. I think there's very interesting things that are going to happen in the near future. Uh, talking about the digital markets and uh, the class action you mentioned, by the way, I, we are planning to have Lisa. Uh, Great. Yeah, Great. yeah, the IDC sooner or later uh, to explain us what exactly is that case that she has uh, filed against Facebook on behalf of some consumers, uh, mainly in the UK, I think. And Lisa, and Lisa also should point out she's very brave in that British sense because the British sense is when a when a minister says to you you know it makes a decision and the and the and the, the secretary said the permanent secretary says to them a oh, very brave decision minister Lisa's been particularly brave because she's an academic right uh, she's got my former position at the British Institute and she's bringing a class action against Facebook and yes she's this third party litigation obviously and she's got an advisory team Richard Wish etc yes it's, it's it's all cool but she's also. Uh, a very, very senior official at the FCA. And so that's the bravery part is uh, I'd love to see the general counsel memo at the FCA that said, why is one of our staff bringing a case against Facebook? But uh, but, but she's but she cares. She really cares. And so for those yeah. of you who get a chance to see Lisa speak about this and how like, you know, her deep knowledge of financial service regulation, exploitation of data, etc., has led her to say, I'm also going to bring a, a class action against Facebook for this is uh, is a real, really interesting to see. And of course, obviously, we're all looking closely at how that is. and it will be decided by the, the, the specialist 
the competition court, which is good too, because some of those cases go to the general court, and that and that's fine too. But the, I think the CAT really has a, something to offer in this regard on this on this idea of exploitation of data. Great, that was a great introduction to our next activity of the IDC that will happen uh, anytime soon, in the next two or three weeks, uh, maybe before or after the spring meeting in Washington. So again, Philip, once again, thank you very much for joining us and it was a pleasure to have you here. Uh, thanks everybody for joining and we'll see you again uh, in the next activity of the IDC. Bye-bye. Thanks all. Stay healthy, everybody. Take care. Bye -bye. Take care.